I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Welcome to the I'm in Love with That Song podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brad Page, and we've got a special episode lined up this time. You all probably know by now that I love guitars and guitar players, and there is no guitar player that I've loved as much or for as long as I've loved B.B. King. This September 16th would have been B.B.'s 97th birthday. Daniel DeVisay is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. His biography of B.B. King, called King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, was published last year, and it is excellent. So I've asked Daniel to come on the show to talk about B.B. King and why he's one of the most important artists of the last 100 years. We've picked five songs to illustrate his career, his impact, and the path that his life would follow. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Daniel DeVisay. Daniel, thanks for joining me on the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. I read your book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, and I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm excited to have you on here to talk about B.B. King. We decided to pick five songs as a way to show the scope of his career. It's no easy feat when you consider he released dozens of albums. Uh, but first, to get us started, can you give us just a quick overview of his story, where he came from, how his career got started, and how he ended up being, I think, one of the most important musical figures of the last century? B.B. was born in 1925, I think on September 16th, a day before my birthday, um, in Itabina, Mississippi, which is in the Delta. He was born into a sharecropping family, uh, which is economically kind of like the system that came in after slavery was abolished for many black Americans in the South. You were nominally free, but in kind of indentured to the land and to the landowner because right. the way the system was set up you were like always in debt. You never get out of debt. Uh, you end up owing more than you make in most years. Anyway, so I'll, this is like 100 pages of the book, but I'll, I'll gloss over it. Yeah. Um, he first emerges out of impoverishment, out of poverty to become a tractor driver, which is kind of a higher up job. And so that, that paid enough that he was actually earning money, which was cool. And his father had done that. His father was kind of an alpha male, hardworking dude who also was a tractor driver. And the story might have ended there. I mean, that's where it ended for Albert King, the father. He became a tractor driver and was able to raise a family and end the story. But B.B. had deeper ambitions. He had an ear, which I think was a remarkable, remarkably gifted ear for music. He was really drawn to the field hollers, the people shouting blues out across the, the fields. He was really smitten with the records that he heard. He had a great aunt who had a Victrola. And so he was able through that to listen to all this stuff. Um, like uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson was a huge star. So, so he heard recordings of Blind Lemon Jefferson just playing the guitar and singing. So he, he heard whatever was popular. And then he, he just kind of fell for some new sounds. He heard electric guitar. And the sound he heard that he really fell for was... Um, T-Bone Walker, and that would have been in like probably 46, 47 when, when T-Bone had his big hit, Stormy Monday Blues, 
And he also, around the time, also was exposed to Charlie Christian, the really great black jazz guitarist who sort of introduced solo guitar into jazz music. Right. He also had heard Lonnie Johnson, who's not as familiar of a name, but people who really, really know their guitar history would, would posit Johnson. Lonnie Johnson is one of the all-time greats. He was actually bending strings and playing solos guitar in the 20s in the blues idiom and, uh, and jazz idiom both. He was recording all, all up through the 40s and 50s. So B.B. Just, just really fell for the solo guitar sound. And that's how he wound up straying from gospel singing and getting into playing and singing uh, rhythm and blues on the guitar. And, and this takes us to the, you know, the latter years of the 1940s. One of the things that um, in your book that really um, jumped out at me, and it makes perfect sense, but you don't think of it that way with somebody like B.B. King, who's been an icon for as many years as you and I have, have heard him. He was a master by then. But like everyone, when he started out, he really wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, um, right. I, I don't know that anybody would written about this, but if you listen to B.B.'s first, very first recordings in 1949, for the Bullet label, which was out of Nashville. He couldn't keep time at all. He wasn't accustomed to playing with other musicians. And also his solo playing was rudimentary, let's say, at the beginning. He, he, he sounds more like a guitar student than a guitar master at the very beginning. And what I think happened, and I say this in the book, I think between 1949 and 1950, he really buckled down and spent hours and hours and hours and hours playing. And he, he learned how to play with other players. And he developed this wonderful lead guitar sound. He, he'd been doing acoustic, uh, more like Robert Johnson style guitar. And, and I think he learned maybe only in the latter part of the forties to play electric guitar and, and to do this, this kind of solo style that he learned from T-Bone Walker. So by the time of his first, you know, really professional singles, which were recorded for Sam Phillips in 1950, by that time, he sounded pretty close to the BB King we know and love. And that, Kind of brings us up to the first song that we chose to talk about, which was a single from 1951, a song called Three O'Clock Blues, which is, it's a landmark record in B.B.'s career, right? Tell us about that song. So by 1951, B.B. had cut and released a number of singles with Sam Phillips uh, at the controls. And Sam Phillips, you know, was kind of a genius. But Sam, uh, I, I would argue, and I think, Sam Phillips' biographer, Goralnik, Peter Goralnik probably would agree, didn't really know what to do with B.B. Um, I think he was thinking of B.B. King as a singer. You can't fault him for that because the guitar wasn't a prominent instrument in 1950, even, even as late as 1951. Right. I point out in my book that there weren't a lot of like songs that had gone to the top of the rhythm and blues charts that featured guitar almost all the band leaders were pianists or horn players or just singers. So there just wasn't a lot of precedent for somebody fronting a band, playing the guitar and singing. And so I, th I don't think Sam Phillips thought that way. He was thinking of BB as a singer, which he was, he was a fine singer. So uh, the irony of all this is that Sam has a falling out with the Bahari brothers, the Bahari brothers being the gang who ran BB's record label. So the Baharis were left with BB they lost Sam Phillips as the engineer. And so the youngest Bahari brother, Joe Bahari, winds up recording BB's next side. And the song that they chose was Three O'Clock Blues, which had been a hit for Lowell Fulson, who was a pretty well-known West Coast blues guitarist. Mm -hmm. By this time, 1951, BB was a DJ operating out of Memphis, WDIA. 
which was the first all-black talent radio station. So Fulson allowed B.B. to record the song because B.B. had been spinning Fulson's version of it on the radio. And the way that I describe it in the book is B.B. set out to put his own stamp of sincere intensity on Fulson's song, whose lyrics, quote, I'm quoting from another writer, start out as an insomniac's lament, but end up with a weepy farewell more suited to a suicide note, close quote. It seemed perfect for B.B.'s emerging vocal style, fervent, intimate, and intense. Now it is three o'clock in the morning. Close my oh, three o'clock in the morning, baby. Can't even close my it was sounding good, but after the first take, Joe Bahari didn't quite have the sound he wanted. The pianist, who was Phineas Newborn, a wonderful top drawer jazz pianist, but he didn't have that rhythm and blues sound. So on a break, Joe Bahari hears this really great rocking piano, like, wait, that's the sound I want in this song. Turns out the person playing the piano was Ike Turner, who's not yet known, but he's just this kid, just, you know, like the prince of his day, you know, amazingly versatile. He can play anything. <laughs> so, so get ready to get out. Let's get rid of Phineas Newborn, the jazz, great jazz pianist. Let's have Ike sit at the keys. And so Ike turned in this wonderful swinging piano and the second take it all came together three o'clock in the morning baby can't even close my kind of say that in my book that I think Three O'Clock Blues, Blues was the first song where the producer showcases B.B. and his guitar, Lucille, equally. They get equal prominence in the song. And prior to that, B.B.'s voice was overshadowing his guitar. So this is, in a way, this is where the story begins. And it, it shot like a bullet to number one on the Rhythm of Blues charts, and it became B.B.'s first number one. Yeah, there's a few things fascinating about the track. For one, the fact that it was recorded in a YMCA, not in a studio, <laughs> not in any kind of anything resembling a professional environment. It does feature some of the classic B.B. King licks there in there, but he hasn't quite developed that the legendary B.B. King phrasing yet. And you don't really hear that classic B.B. King trill or vibrato that he became famous for. It's, you can, there's hints of it there, but it's not fully developed yet. And the solo doesn't really flow the way his later solos would. You can just hear that he's, he's made major leaps, but he's still, he's still developing. B.B. was obsessed with Roy Brown, the, the rhythm and blues singer. And, and if he'd stopped making records around this time, he might have been remembered as a great singer in the sort of Roy Brown mold. And that was w what B.B. sounded like as a vocalist at first. Right. 
Time for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Next track, we're going to skip ahead to 1964 and a single called Rock Me Baby, one of the most influential songs he ever released. Let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, to unpack Rock Me Baby, let me first explain that at the beginning of the 60s, B.B. switched labels. He left the Bahari Brothers fold, the RPM Records fold. The Bahari Brothers, this is very difficult to completely explain because on the one hand, they kind of robbed Baby Blind. I mean, they took uh, composing credits for songs that they hadn't written. And then they, they I, I picture them kind of paying him like one advance check on every song. And I doubt BB would see any more money no matter how many copies sold. So that side of the ledger makes them look kind of bad. But on the other hand, they didn't, 
they didn't mess with him. They let him record the songs pure, sounding the same way they would sound if BB were to perform them live in a club. And they hired great musicians, great arrangers, the most important of whom was Maxwell Davis, just a wonderful musician and arranger. By 1961-62, BB had gone to the major label, uh, ABC Paramount, but ABC Paramount didn't know what the hell to do with him. And they, they kept recording him with like the Ray Charles Orchestra and just, again, made the same mistake Sam Phillips had made a decade earlier. They thought he was a singer. <laughs> right. They, for some reason, they didn't realize they had this amazing guitarist on their roster. So they kept giving him these croony ballads to sing, and he was going nowhere in his career. So meanwhile, the minor label, the race label, RPM still had a, a trunk load of songs that he had cut for them. So they kept releasing them through the first half of the 60s and into the second half of the 60s. Rock Me Baby comes out, and just like everything that BB had done for RPM, it's tastefully done, it's simple, pure, no orchestration. It's just a nice you know, five- or six-piece blues song. And oddly enough, it became one of the most important songs that this uh, RPM Records label would ever release under BB's name. And the reason is it hit at a good moment. Um, I think that the listeners out in the world were starting to, especially in Britain, were starting to discover uh, first acoustic and then electric blues. Um, it actually charted in the States, too. It, it reached number 34 on the Billboard pop chart. Now, Rock Me Baby was originally, uh, I think, a Bill Brunzi song that was originally called Rock and Chair of Blues, and B.B. retooled it. And I think this is important. His, his arrangement of it is very musically disciplined. It has a very strong and memorable and kind of dependable melody that kind of doesn't change, right. set against a simple repeated guitar riff that's doubled on the piano. It's very, very simple and very disciplined, and it just worked. Jimi Hendrix discovered it and put it on his repertoire when he when he started out as a solo artist. Um, Rock Me Baby became one of his kind of standout songs. They got a little tune on around named Rock Me Baby, you know. No, this kind of... Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, we got our own little Rock Me Baby and it goes something like this here. The words might be wrong, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> Dig this anyway. <laughs> Rock me, baby, rock me all night long. Rock me, baby, rock me all night long. And in Britain, it was the first big song of any stripe released by B.B. King. And this is very significant because this is right when the people who would become the Stones and the Yardbirds uh, were all 
just soaking up any black American music they could get their paws on. Nobody had heard any B.B. King music at all in Britain. So Eric Clapton discovered the song. I think the animals, Eric Bird and the animals wanted up covering it. And so it was a huge the song was a huge deal in, in, in Britain. And it was a significant single in America. It caused BB's new label, ABC Paramount, to start rethinking their strategy with him because, hey, uh, his old label had just gotten him onto the top 40, which his new label had failed to do. Right. It's one of his songs, uh, maybe the song that's been probably covered the most. I mean, Thrill is Gone is the song he's most known for, but I think if you're looking for cover versions, I mean, Rock Me Baby was like a standard uh, cover song uh, up up into the 80s. I mean, Johnny Winter did a killer version of it. Uh, Deep Purple used to include it in their set. I mean, it was a go-to song for so many of uh, of the blues derived rock and roll bands, and of course we are more than ten years past when Three O'clock Blues was originally cut. But here you really hear that BB King phrasing, especially the way uh, the solo pushes and pulls against the beat. Even that simple opening guitar lick, you can hear him kind of almost tugging back at, at the beat just with that couple of note lick there. It's it's very distinctive, BB, and and the vocal, it's classic BB King too. The way uh, he moves between belting it out to bringing it down to almost a gentle coo, all within the same line. And some of that vocal phrasing, like the way he sings the opening line, rock me all night long. Rock me, baby. Rock me all night long. It's just quintessential BB. Everything about this song is, it's, it's, by now, the BB King style, both vocally and musically, I think, has been distilled. It's all there in, by, at this point. He's, yeah, he's I, I, I guess I listened to most of these songs in chronological order as I was writing the book. And I know I, I, I get what you're saying, because as I like when I reached three o'clock blues from 51. Yeah, I could tell that his vocals, although he still sounds like Roy Brown, he's confident. And you can tell he's been a DJ because he's he just uh, doesn't seem awkward anymore singing. And right. his guitar is starting to creep toward the the sound that we know and love today. He, he knew how to do the vibrato very early on. I think I, I, I actually caught the vibrato on uh, one of his very earliest Sam Phillips recording, but he didn't use it all the time. Um, I, don't, I don't think he'd realized yet that that was going to be kind of a signature right. sound. You I, know? Exactly. And, and over the years, it, it, you know, his, his, both his voice, and we'll talk more about his voice um, a little later in this, but his voice and his, and his guitar attack 
just progress toward the thing that we know and love and recognize today, you know? So the following year, 1965, he releases a live album called Live at the Regal, which by any measure is one of the most important guitar albums of all time. So first, let's talk a little bit about this album. Talk about where this album came from. Yeah, um, so that's moving directly forward from the song we just discussed, Rock Me Baby, went top 40, and that would have been an embarrassment to ABC Paramount because they had this first-ranked blues guitarist and didn't realize it. I think they finally decided, well, we, this Ray Charles orchestra thing isn't working with BB. <laughs> Maybe he's not a crooner after all. Maybe he's a blues guitarist who sings. Thankfully for us all, they found somebody who, who did know what to do with them. They went to Johnny Pate, who was a fine uh, jazz bassist turned producer. He had made a, a string of great singles with Curtis Mayfield, including uh, Keep On Pushing, It's All Right. Uh, great and stuff. Johnny sat down with BB and, you know, what are we going to do? How, how can we capitalize on this Rock Me Baby hit? And they basically decided they didn't have time really to go do a big studio album, so let's do something live. That's the quickest way to do it. And so it was just a matter of convenience that, that this landmark live record was made. A hugely influential record uh, amongst guitar players, both in the States and in England, particularly in England. I know Eric Clapton, it was, he always sang the praises of this record. Uh, just a really important record, guitar player-wise. The song that I chose to talk about from this album is You Upset Me, Baby. The original version was released in 1954, I think, but this version, it just cooks. Uh, it's the first track that we've listened to so far on this show that features the bigger band sound with the horn section. It opens with a nice little guitar solo. It's a great showcase for BB as a vocalist. He just sounds like he's having a great night in front of a great audience. Um, so you upset me, baby. When it came out, um, I really seized on that song in my manuscript here. I wrote in my book, it boasted neither his greatest lyrics nor his most accomplished guitar work yet as a finished song. And I'm talking now about the single from 10 years earlier. Right. It was somehow more memorable than anything BB had recorded before. The reason was BB's vocal. In hindsight, and this is 1954, this recording seems to mark the emergence of his unique voice as a blues stylist. B.B. was no longer channeling Roy Brown. His relaxed delivery, his conversational singing style, his tendency to lag behind the beat, the warm rasp that engulfed his voice at the end of each melodic phrase. From first to last, the vocal on You Upset Me, Baby was unmistakably B.B. King. And also, I'd say it was also unmistakably ribald. And so you're hearing all the same things in the live of the Regal recording. Um, the song was possibly the first recognizable, this is B.B. singing. There's no question this is B.B. King. Right. And then 10 years later, it, it slots perfectly into this regal set. Yeah, she's not too tall. Complexion is fair. Man, she knocked me off the way she wear You upset me there. Yes, you upset me there. Well, like being hit by a fallen tree. Woman, what do you do to me? The reason why Live at the Regal is so important, I think, is that he'd been doing this 
Ray Charles Orchestra crooning stuff for a few years. And the fact that he was a great guitarist who also was a great singer had not registered with anybody who mattered in the music industry. And Live at the Regal showed his the double-barreled attack of his guitar and voice and then the, the incredible effect he had on a, on a black audience in a black club, just to such potent effect. Um, it was like a revelation. Well, now I'm tired to describe her. It's hard to start. Never stop now because I've got a weak mind. You upset me, baby. Yes, you upset me, baby. Well, I don't like being hit by a falling tree. Woman, what you do to me? And the irony, though, I, as you know, because you read this, I interviewed a couple of his bandmates from that era, and, and um, he, they thought the record was crap. Uh, <laughs> and the reason they didn't like it was uh, Duke Jethro, the keyboard man, told me this, is that they were um, the band was paired up with the house band. And so there's two bands playing behind BB. And as a result of that, it's, it's not the tightest instrumental performance because the house band at the Regal, they knew BB stuff, but it wasn't like nearly so tight as a normal BB King performance would be with just his band. And so they didn't like it. BB thought it was just okay, but, but it was still a, a, a very good BB King show and that was good enough. Yeah. It's interesting how those things turn out, right? <laughs> um, artists perspective of their own work versus how it's received by the wider audience and it's 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 i love the record but it is not my favorite bb king live record um well um scott beretta the great 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 blues hound from mississippi scott told me his favorite bb king record is the next live record after this one which is called blues is king Mm -hmm. that's a great one too yeah much less well known and was recorded at a different chicago club and it it is a wonderful record really really powerful it's a breakup record in fact yeah. I, I would recommend it to anybody who's interested. Let's pause here for a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, she's 36 in the bus, 28 the way, 44 in the hip, she got real crazy legs. You upset me, baby. Yes, you upset me, baby. So Live at the Regal was a landmark album. One of the things that you point out in the book, uh, and I agree, is that for all of his amazing playing, so many great songs. For a guy who put out something like 50 albums, there's actually very few of the albums that are really great, like great start to finish. I, I wrote an article for All Music, um, the website. I, I, off the top of my head, I, I think in this All Music article, I, I advocate for uh, the completely well album, which is the mm-hmm. one that has Thrills Gone on it. Yep. That's a really solid record front to back. Yeah, um, well, and, and one of his better records uh, is an album from 1969 called Live and Well. And yes. so that brings us to the next song that we were going to talk about, which is Why I Sing the Blues. Let's, um, let's talk about that song. Yeah, so with that record, which became known as um, Live and Well, he starts working with a 26-year-old white guy named Bill Simzik who was this young, I think, staff producer at ABC Paramount, who had the impulse that you and I were just discussing, which is uh, ABC has this amazing guitarist on, on their roster, and they're, and they're not doing anything with him. So Simzik 
has this vision. He wants to set BB up with a group of really, really solid session guys in a New York studio and just see what they could do to modernize his sound because his sound was desperately in need of modernization at that point. And I think BB wanted maybe to do another live set, so they wind up compromising, and half the record is live and half of it is Memorex. You know, half of it is recorded in the studio. The whole record's very good, but the, the final cut on it, it, the closer, Why I Sing the Blues, is truly remarkable. And here's how I describe it in the book. An eight-minute explosion of anger and hurt, a performance so propulsive and powerful that it left the listener wondering why the band had been holding back. Uh, why I Sing the Blues was BB's first overtly political statement. And I, I mean this, I listened to hundreds of his songs, and he had not done politics prior to this right. all through the 60s he had not expressed himself politically in song. So this song appeared as a single several months after James Brown's landmark Say It Loud, I'm Black, Black, and I'm Proud. B.B.'s message was both longer and angrier. B.B. had not addressed race in a song before, let alone slavery. Now he raged about urban blight and slum housing, the Chitlin Circuit and the welfare state. Uh, The Dylan Length lyric, apparently co-written with a rhythm and blues writer named Dave Clark, unfolded as an extended Sociological Observation on Black America, a theme Marvin Gaye would explore at album's length two years later with What's Going On. When I first got the blues, they brought me over on a ship. Men were standing over me, and a lot more with the whip, man. Everybody want to know why I sing the blues. Well, I've been around a long time. Mm-hmm, I've really been. It's such a great track on, on so many levels. It's a considerably funkier song than any than anything he'd tackled to date, which that alone kind of, you know, you can see the influence of of uh, the James Brown sound. Not that it sounds anything like James Brown, but until then he hadn't done anything uh, that funky. Um, yeah, I, I, I needed um, Jerry Jamat, the bass guy, to kind of explain this to me. I've been listening, obviously, to this stuff for all my life. But he was helping me to understand how B.B. and all his musicians were used to the swing beat. And with this record, B.B. and his musicians broke out a funk beat, which is the sound of Sly Stone and the sound of Latter-day James Brown. So it was new for him, and it made him sound more modern. And it sounds great. I mean, he works unlike some of the other trends, if you will. Like, he slotted into this sound fantastically. He sounds great. He sounds at home on this track. And young Uh, and energetic. Yeah. really good. I see. 
the first time and one of the very few times in his whole career, really, where he addressed anything that remotely had a political spin to it. Um, yeah, um, I, I wanted to say uh, just a few words about that. He'd done a lot of work for the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. um, but really shied away from getting any publicity for it. You will not, I promise you, you won't find any write-up of him. Any of the, the, I think, many times that he played at like fundraisers for Dr. King or for uh, the NAACP or, or various different uh, civil rights organizations, he was clearly involved in the movement, but it was all behind the scenes. Right. And he'd, he'd chosen never to go political um, in any of his songs up to then. Um, and it took the war and it took some different societal changes to get artists, both black and white, to kind of go there into po- political statements in their songs, you know? Yeah. And, and he touches on all of that uh, in this song, the history of yeah, slavery and racism, housing, economics, the war, along with a lot of classic B.B. King work. Between every verse, practically, there's a a guitar break. It's a great solo at three minutes and 20 seconds. There's another one at four minutes and 30 seconds that it's like a string of pure B.B. King licks. just like a textbook example of why he's such a great uh, guitar player. And then the song really doesn't so much end as it just kind of runs out of, it's like they're just exhausted at the end of it and they just kind of slowly peter out. It's an interesting way to end the track and end the album because it's the last track on that album. Yeah, and if, if, if anybody listens to this and, and hears that song and really loves that song, the reason I, I love um, the follow-up album so much, completely well, it's the same musicians. Mm-hmm. And by the time they reconvened to make completely well the second album, uh, it's sort of like they met as friends. And they bring, you know, they've, got their, they've got their weed, they've got their wine, and they've got their familiarity. They were no longer session hands they were like friends because right. they'd done all this before and they'd probably really bonded on this very song that you and I are discussing. So if you, you listen to the, the next record completely well, it, it's like, it's just a masterful record from start to finish. Yeah. Uh, to me, those records are like two of a pair almost. They kind of go together yeah. really, really well. And they're two of his, 
of his strongest records. Like we said, there's a, there's a lot of records, unfortunately, in his catalog that are, they, they all have their moments, but they're not great front to back. But I, I would yeah. definitely recommend um, for anyone looking, particularly if you're looking for something with more of the modern sound that uh, live and well and completely well are two great places to start with his album catalog. Okay, so one last track. I wanted to bring us all the way to the end to BB's very last album, One Kind Favor, released in 2008, and the track that opens that album. It's a Blind Lemon Jefferson song, which you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, a song called See That My Grave Is Kept Clean, because it's a really yeah. poignant song for him to choose at this time. His performance of it is very poignant. And just the role that the song would play at the end of his life. Um, tell us some of that story. I mean, he'd become this huge and, and increasingly renowned, celebrated titan of American music and popular culture. But his records of, of those final years weren't, you know, consistently good, mm -hmm. but he and his handlers came up with the idea of, I think maybe for posterity's sake of, of giving it one more really good try. So they found T-Bone Burnett. I interviewed him. He said, we started with T-Bone Walker and Lonnie Johnson, which is, you know, you can't do better than that. Um, and, and revisited the artists that BB had loved from the first time he cranked up his great aunt's Victrola. T-Bone told me he consciously sought to invoke the sound and feel of B.B.'s recordings with Maxwell Davis and Modern Records in the 1950s, quote, because I, I viewed them as by far the best examples of B.B. King's records. I mean, I got to agree with the man there. I, I, think, I think the Modern Records stuff is the best of B.B.'s work. There's no guest artists. It's B.B. and his band. He needed no help. He, 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 he owns the set. Um, and these are songs he'd known for 50 years. He was killing it. That's what T-Bone told me. And the resulting album, um, the very first track is uh, this Blind Lemon Jefferson song, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. And I, I describe it in the book. The prevailing theme of the album is weariness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, BB, is he knows he's in his autumnal days. He sings with a sepulchral baritone rising out of a funeral dance rhythm. record um more than one of bb's musicians told me that they couldn't listen to this record hmm. because uh it's like man bb you know don't die yet i mean you're not dead yet <laughs> you know yeah. they really had a hard time listening to this album because it was so dark and so sure. funereal <laughs> well the song <laughs> ends up basically being his his own instructions for his own funeral right that that's right. Um, he he intimated as much to uh, a, a dear friend of his toward the end of his life, Alan Hammonds, I believe, uh, who was behind the BB King Museum, and 
you know, listen closely to that song, Alan. And so they wind up following to the letter the lyrics of that song when when BB dies uh, his his funeral. They got the white horses and the golden chain, and and thus was he buried. There's two white horses in the line. Two white horses in the line. Two white horses in the line. Gonna take. Yeah, it's a really moving moment, um, and he he definitely, you know, he he sounds all of his years on that track, um, but it's powerful. It's it reminds me. It's like those those last few Johnny Cash records, right? Well. That's just exactly what I was going to say. I was going to jump in and say, if this is another example of, of him taking inspiration from other artists, you could very much see this as, a, as an answer to the American Recordings uh, series. And, and it's a very worthy record. I mean, you're exactly right. It's, it's definitely one of the best. So there's five great songs out of a lifetime's worth of amazing music to get started with. But what was it that pushed you over the edge into writing this book because it's not a small undertaking writing a book like this. Yeah. I, I chose BB partly because out of the, the artists I really, really revere, he hadn't been the subject of a sort of a literary biography since 1980, which is quite a long time. And then secondly, because I just thought I felt very animated by the question, is this the guy who created the solo guitar sound that became the prevailing solo guitar sound in pop music for the whole latter 30 years of the century. Um, the best way I can think of to just explain what that sound is, is if you ever watched Spinal Tap, mm -hmm. um, when Nigel Tufnell is telling Meathead, you know, to keep his paws off his guitars, yep. he says, you know, he talks about sustain and he, says this says you hear that and he goes yeah. you know yeah. he actually makes the sound with his mouth because he doesn't want to actually play the guitar mm -hmm. that's the sound that's bb's sound and i i just thought it was a great starting point to try to figure out if indeed bb was kind of the guy who popularized that sound and that's kind of why i set out to write it and everything else all the civil rights uh in the book and the kind of microcosm of of the story of america that's that's in the book and the the finesse i tried to bring to the biographical mission um all of that is just i'm so i'm very 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 glad all that other stuff wound up in the book but the initial charge that i gave myself was just to answer that question of was was he that guy <laughs> you know yeah well i think the answer is yes <laughs> I think so. No, spoiler um, alert for the book, but the answer is yes. He is in many ways. I mean, you know, it's you can never put your finger on the first of anything. Um, no, no, but no, no. but but there are people like like the Beatles that refine, right? That take yeah. a bunch of elements and refine them into something that becomes special. And and he's BB King is one of those guys. He is in the rarefied few of like a Dizzy Gillespie or a Louis Armstrong, a 
an artist who is a spokesperson, a representative, an ambassador for a whole genre of music and, and a whole culture because music is, is cultural. And that's a heavy weight to, to burden, to carry. But he did it so elegantly for, for almost his entire career. Daniel Divisay, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk about B.B. King. The book is called King of the Blues, Rise and Reign of B.B. King. And I, I honestly, I encourage anyone who's not just interested in B.B. King, but if you're interested in the history of the blues, the history of the guitar, pick up the book. It's a fascinating story, and it's told really well in this book. Highly recommended. So thanks for writing the book, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Daniel. Oh, no, no, thank you. It's really, really kind of you to have me on. Um, it's been a blast talking to you. I can tell we like a lot of the same stuff. So yeah. it's, it's, been, it's been a really pleasant time talking to you. Same here. Anything that you're working on uh, coming up? Well, yeah, actually, while I was working on this book, I had the occasion to talk to John Landis, the great filmmaker, uh, a couple times because I wanted to know why B.B. wasn't in the Blues Brothers film. Right. Turns Which out, you talk I, about in the book for... For anyone who's interested, that's in the book. Yeah, uh, yes, that's answered in there. But anyway, I got to talking to John Landis, and long story short, um, I wound up selling my next book. Uh, it's going to be uh, paying homage to the Blues Brothers, the film and, and the dudes, mm. um, and the kind of transformational comedy that happened in Second City and Lampoon and Saturday Night Live and leading up to the, this great film. And, and also... I, I, I'm going to explain that the real mission from God, if, you, if you're familiar with that film, the actual mm -hmm. real life mission from God was that Akron and Belushi wanted to help uh, the careers of their favorite rhythm and blues artists, Aretha, yeah. Ray Charles, uh, James Brown. Most of those artists, even though they're now regarded as probably the most, some of the most important artists in the history of American pop music mm -hmm. at the time, they were struggling. Yeah, And they decided to use their ephemeral but enormous fame to shine a light on their heroes. And so it's kind of a sweet story. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Too. Take care. Likewise. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks to Daniel for joining us. And thank you for tuning us in. I hope you enjoyed that. Please join me here again in two weeks for another new episode. On behalf of everyone on the Pantheon Podcast Network, I thank you for listening. Now, go explore the catalog of B.B. King. There's so much great music there. You won't regret it. See you next time. Every day.